grow nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. There is this general global shortage in energy and it's particularly acute in China, which is the world's biggest coal consumer. The real world looks very different from the world in most of the IMs. For September 28th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Incredibly, this is our seventh anniversary show. I know I say this every year, but I am amazed as ever that we've come this far and that our show's audience continues to grow. We have never spent a dime on advertising, never had a sponsor or advertiser, and grew our audience organically, one subscriber at a time, starting from zero, without a parent company to provide support. The success of our show is 100% due to word-of-mouth evangelizing by our listeners, and for that, we are deeply grateful. To all of our loyal subscribers who have sustained us and spread the word about our show, thank you all from the bottom of our hearts. As is our tradition, we like to use our anniversary shows to look back over the year that was and review some of the big stories we covered, as well as to try to take stock of how the energy transition has evolved and changed over the past year. And as always, our friend, energy researcher Jonathan Kumi, has graciously returned to the show to talk it all over with me and offer his own unique perspective on everything. Today we talk about how the global energy crunch we covered a year ago, in episode 158, has now evolved into a full-fledged global energy crisis. We'll reflect on the theme of episode 181, Command Capitalism, and consider the increasing interventions that governments are making in energy markets. We'll muse on the episodes we did over the past year on the trajectory and the speed of the energy transition. We'll consider the outlook for storage systems in light of the episodes we did on that subject. We'll discuss how incumbents have resisted the energy transition as we covered in our episode on utility corruption and ask whether incumbents are gaining or losing ground. We'll review the highlights of our shows on the latest IPCC report and on climate modeling, and John will share some of his latest work in energy modeling. Then in the news segment, we'll take a quick look at the Inflation Reduction Act and CHIPS Act. We'll record a milestone in electricity transmission expansion in the Midwestern U.S. We'll note a number of advances in offshore wind in Europe. We'll check out the largest solar farm in snowy Alaska. And we'll recognize a bold new ban on internal combustion engine vehicles. But before we go to the interview... Announcements, announcements, announcements! We want to remind our annual listeners that there are two ways you can share the Energy Transition Show with a friend or colleague. First, every annual subscriber has three share links per year that they can give to someone else. Each share link will give the recipient one free month of access to the show, which will let them listen to the two most recent full episodes. And second, there is a simple form on our website that you can use to give a year's subscription to a friend. To access both of these new features, just log into our website, click on your name in the upper right-hand corner, and go to the Manage Subscription page, where you'll find the Gift Accounts button. And if you're an annual subscriber, don't forget to post any open jobs you are trying to fill or look at the current openings on our exclusive members-only job board. As I record this, there are openings for business analysts, postdocs in energy economics, energy analysts, client managers, energy equity researchers, and more. So if you're looking for a new role, look no further than our job board, then join the legions of people working on the energy transition today. Finally, we'd like to extend a belated but warm welcome to some of our latest group subscribers. Andafina is a specialist advisory firm based in Australia, offering sustainability and resiliency consulting. 
Stockland Corporation Limited is a diversified Australian property development company. And Stone Peak Infrastructure Partners is a private equity firm investing in energy, transportation, water, and communication sectors in North America. Welcome all. We're so pleased to have you on board. And now, our anniversary roundup with Jonathan Kumi, recorded August 1st, 2022. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, John, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be here. You know, I always look forward to these anniversary shows because it gives me a chance to take stock of what we covered over the past year and sort of take a step back and get a little perspective on the trajectory of the transition and of our show. And since you, like me, pay attention to a wide range of issues in the energy transition, I always like to get your take on the major questions that we've tackled over the past year. And I always find it interesting to see what you've been up to as well, because you always have interesting projects afoot. So we'll discuss some of those today, too. So just to get us started here, I think I want to talk about what I've been calling the global energy crunch. This has been a much bigger story this year than I expected it would be a year ago when we first covered it in episode 158. Now, that was before Biden had authorized SPR releases to help consumers afford gasp $3 a gallon gasoline. (laughs) And that was nearly six months before the Russian invasion. At the time, the proximate concerns were rising natural gas prices in the UK, which then gradually expanded to sort of a rising demand in prices for LNG and Asia and Europe, and then to rising prices in the US and the rest of the world. So it was really mostly a natural gas story. And then it spread to coal as soaring gas prices led some countries to fall back on their coal plants for power generation which in turn pushed up coal prices to the point of unaffordability, forcing some power plants into outages. And then it started exacerbating various supply chain issues all around the world. So now we are in a situation where more than a few observers are seeing this macro picture emerging on this global energy crunch, particularly with respect to oil. Unstoppable demand growth in China, and then demand rebound in the rest of the world as it tries to get back to normal, even though the pandemic is anything but over, has collided with turmoil in major oil exporters like Nigeria, Iraq, and Angola, with weak investment in the U.S. oil patch, and a limited appetite in the major OPEC producers for increasing production capacity, plus a general shunning of Russian oil by the West, which has materially reduced Russia's output as well. Now, I agree with a recent piece by Derek Brower in the FT in which he was getting those 2008 vibes all over again, and I linked to that in the show notes, but he wondered if there was another historic inflection point upon us, and I'm starting to feel that myself. What are your thoughts? Well, the energy markets are like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's all connected. And so we're seeing that in the examples that you described. One of the things that's striking to me is that it's not just about crude oil prices. I think a lot of people think that the main driver or perhaps the only driver of gasoline price increases is the increased price of crude. And that's definitely a factor. But it's also true that gasoline prices are much higher than they have been in the past when crude oil prices we're at their current levels. And so it's not just crude prices going up. It's also that there are refinery constraints. And if there's a different mix of products being demanded by consumers than refineries are set up to handle, you end up with these kind of constraints that can drive up prices for products in ways that are kind of separate from the increase in prices from the price of crude. So that's one of the 
the high level points that I'd like to make about it is that you really do need to understand more than just the price of crude oil. It's not just about releasing crude from the strategic petroleum reserve. It's it's about what kind of crude is it and what are refineries able to handle and what are consumers demanding. And all yeah. those things are feeding into this increased price of petroleum products. Yeah. And the dynamics are a little different than just the straight crude oil price. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, so the this distinction between crude oil and oil products also it just points to the importance of understanding the complexity of the supply chain for oil and gas. What we've showed in several iterations of our oil climate index, and now we include gas in that, is that for emissions also, it's not just about price, but if for emissions also, how you find oil and gas, how you produce it, how you process it, and how you use it all have important effects on the total life cycle emissions. The old view was always to focus on products like gasoline and diesel and say, well, they're all more or less the same. And they are pretty comparable around the world. But when you focus instead on barrels of crude oil or cubic meters of gas, a different picture emerges. And that's because of all the complexity around carbon content of the oil, impurities in the oil, whether the oil field is old, so it has a lot of water mixed with the oil, whether there's leakage of natural gas, flaring of natural gas, and so on. Yeah. Another angle you didn't mention is this kind of lack of focus on energy efficiency as a response to deal with the energy crunch. And there's certainly been a lot of discussion about increasing production, but it's important to think also about ways to affect the demand of both crude oil as well as oil products. And I think that people have definitely been focused much more on the supply side. And I think that's a mistake because there's plenty of ways to affect demand that will have perhaps an even more rapid effect on the price of oil. And that's something that we need to focus on in ways that we haven't thus far. You know, I was going to just make the opposite point. I think it's actually in many ways faster to try to enact some sort of an increased supply than it is to cut demand, particularly for oil. Well, I think that there are some things that take longer on the demand side, but there's a great report that the international agency did, I think about 15 years ago now, it was called Saving Electricity in a Hurry. But the same sort of report could be focused on oil and gas. So there are things you can definitely do on the demand side that are quicker. And people in the electricity sector, they focused on shifting demand because of the real-time nature. But you can definitely imagine ramping up insulation programs. You can imagine ramping up programs to shift people to heat pumps and to heat pump water heaters. You can ramp up programs to get people to buy electric vehicles. And so I'm hopeful that this energy crunch, although it's been difficult and stressful in a lot of ways, will actually lead to a greater focus on these demand side interventions that will have a pretty big impact, at least in the medium term, on the demand for oil. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, that's one of the things that we talked about in our episode on on the Western response to the whole Russian situation in episode 171. And it was clear there that heat pumps are going to be a huge part of the response, especially with respect to finding ways to displace the need for Russian gas in Europe. 
But the oil thing is a lot harder to displace. All you have to do is look at a chart of U.S. oil consumption, or for that matter, gasoline consumption. And you can look back over the major crashes that we had in like 2008 and 2020, and you almost can't even see a detectable (laughs) dip in demand in the U.S. It's remarkably resilient. Well, but I think the shift after COVID was pretty noticeable because people were not commuting. And so I think that that's an example where the shift to telework actually was a pretty rapid response Yes. to a different kind of crisis. But if you can implement that during a time like this energy crunch, then it could also have 5 6% sort of effect. And that could have a pretty big effect on prices. That's right. So I think what we're seeing here is it's a very complex situation. You have the prices and they reflect kind of what they do. You have the emissions aspect of it, as you mentioned a moment ago. And then you have the time dimension of how quickly or how slowly you can respond to things in different ways. I think for the most part on the demand side, it takes a while. I mean, we've had a lot of discussion this past year about, for example, President Biden invoking the Defense Production Act to try to stimulate the production of heat pumps because we just don't even have enough manufacturing of that, let alone training up more electricians to go out and install those things and just developing the literacy amongst contractors. I saw somebody post on Twitter today that when they talked to their local contractor a year ago about installing a heat pump, he recommended against it because he just didn't have the familiarity. And now that's his top recommendation. So it's taking a while to get people thinking about these new solutions, to get them comfortable, familiar with them, to get the manufacturing of this stuff out to consumers, and then just to get it installed. I mean, I don't know exactly how long it would take if you could get a contractor on the phone today to get a heat pump installed, but I'm guessing they couldn't do anything for you for months, probably, because all the contractors around here anyway are just busy. Yeah, and it turns out that we are actually in the process of getting bids on converting our furnaces to heat pumps. Yeah. We have two floors, one furnace on top, one furnace on bottom. And these are people who are recommended by some local energy efficiency folks. And we expect a bid actually this week. Mm. But what he said was that all of the supply chain is backed up. Yeah. And so for the really good technology, the more variable speed stuff, the stuff that's more advanced, it's taking five, six months. Yeah. And so we're lucky that we can do this on a somewhat leisurely schedule. Our furnaces are 25 years old, but there's nothing wrong with them. They'll last another season for sure. Yeah. So we can afford to wait, but for people whose furnace breaks in a cold climate, that could be a real big problem. And so I see that. That's hard. Yeah. And supply chain problems have equally affected the supply of EVs. Sure. We've got all kinds of supply chain problems there. And that's another major way that we could attack the problem of oil supply from the demand side, but you can't do that quickly either if you can't get cars. (laughs) Yeah. And that's something we've learned. We've learned now, given this recent shock in the last few years, that lean supply chains, when they work well, are great at driving down costs, but they open you up to a lack of resilience. Exactly. It opens you up to different kinds of risks and different kinds of costs. And so I think there will be a shift away from this pure lean supply chain approach to having more diversified supply after this, because it's been such a disaster. I mean, just a massive, massive cluster. 
Yeah. And you're reminding me now of how we got into this place. I guess we're both old enough to remember that the fascination with the lean supply chain kind of developed as a part of the Japanese management strategies back in the 80s, remember? And yep, sure. we're talking about how much smarter just-in-time supply is and and how we're going to save everybody money and warehousing costs by eliminating all that stuff. But what you did in the process was you eliminated all the backup. You eliminated all the redundancy that gives you resiliency in those supply chains. Right. And I think what we're seeing now is we have to actually start rebuilding some of that buffer. Yeah. And it also points to the fact one of the advantages of capitalism is that it's really good at driving down costs and eliminating redundancy and really getting things to be as efficient as possible given a certain set of external circumstances. But there are limits to what that can do, especially in a world that's changing rapidly, where there are other risks that having these lean supply chains, for example, open you up to. Yeah. And that's really, I think, an important lesson for people to realize is that capitalism by itself does certain things very well, but it's not a cure-all. It's not by itself going to solve the problems that we have. That's right. And the perspective of like, what's the fast way to respond to this stuff? I think there's a good reason why most people are looking to the supply side, because there's this expectation that certain oil producers, most particularly Saudi Arabia and UAE, have some spare capacity at hand where they can just sort of open up the taps and deliver another million barrels a day of oil or maybe 1.5 to the global market. But in recent months, I think we've seen a number of indications that that may no longer be the case. And I honestly don't think the oil market has correctly priced in that risk at this point. I remember in the big oil crunch of 2008, where we saw prices you know, shoot up to $147 a barrel, it was a combination of factors, as always, that led to that moment. There was a, definitely sort of a manic moment that was price had gotten ahead of any kind of fundamental read on the situation. But an important part of that fundamental read was the lack of spare capacity. And when President Biden was in Saudi Arabia meeting with MBS a few weeks ago, he got the message that Saudi Arabia only planned to increase its production capacity by maybe another half a million to a million barrels a day. And once they got to about 13 million barrels a day, that would be it. And I think historically, they've only rarely exceeded 11 million barrels a day of production, and only for very short periods of time, I think maybe a few weeks. And so if, in fact, the global supply is reaching kind of its limit, if, in fact, spare capacity globally is at that sort of one to one and a half million barrels a day, which is in a hundred million barrel a day system, more or less, it's about one to one and a half percent marginal capacity still available. That's a problem, especially if we see Russian supply continuing to fall in response to Western sanctions and just sort of a lack of willing buyers. We could be in for a lot more trouble yet as far as oil is concerned. And that basically leaves you with nothing but relatively slow demand responses. So I think we could be in real trouble here in terms of oil supply, in terms of oil prices, but very closely associated with that is the natural gas supply and price story. I mean, we've seen just unbelievable power prices out of the UK and other parts of Europe, particularly France and Germany too. 
in the last couple of months. I mean, once these increased prices of power generation owing to higher natural gas prices make their way into retail bills, there is going to be some major consumer outrage and screaming. And I think I think we could see a situation here where a number of global governments are put in a position of just having to bail out consumers on their utility bills, whether it makes sense or not, whether it has anything to do with normal market functioning or not, just in order to maintain domestic tranquility. (laughs) So this is actually similar in some ways to the supply chain story, because natural gas used to be a local phenomenon. We had very low gas prices in the U.S. for a long time, but as soon as we started building export terminals, and other countries did as well, suddenly we are opening up our gas markets to the vagaries in price of global markets. And as soon as there's a disruption like we've seen in the last year or so, you start to see where that kind of system leads to massive, massive shifts in prices and massive discontinuities. I think that's a real challenge and that's something people need to think about. The problem ultimately is dependence on volatile fuels whose prices can change overnight. Yeah. And the medium to long-term solution is to replace fuels with capital and with solar, with wind, with nuclear power, to the uses of fuels with more capital intensive resources whose cost does not change based on what regime change in Saudi Arabia or the Russians invading Ukraine or anything else. The cost of wind, if you've built the plant, the cost is the cost. Yeah. And sure, there might be some O&M issues over time, but it's, it's modest changes, right? It's not doubling the price overnight or more. So I think that's something that particularly politicians need to be thinking about because the German story of shutting down nuclear power and not shutting down coal <laughs> rapidly enough, this is the kind of short-term thinking that has gotten us into a lot of trouble. And we really need to be thinking about this longer term of we just have to get off of these fuels as rapidly as we can. Yeah, and frankly, I think quite a bit too much has been made of that particular issue because all you got to do is look at France, which has continued to be committed to its nuclear power and to not try to shut them down. And they have more than half of their nuclear generation fleet offline for most of this year and some of the highest power prices in Europe as a result as they're pulling on imports from anywhere they can get it. So not shutting down nuclear plants has not been much of a help for France, (laughs) right? Well, yeah, I mean, the context is different, but I feel like the aggressive ramping down of nuclear power in Germany was probably a mistake from a climate perspective. And keeping those around a little longer might be helpful in some ways. The French problems are a separate set of issues because they have a very high dependency on nuclear. And they've had issues now with the the rivers being too warm and that makes it harder to run the plants. And there's been some mechanical issues as well. Their biggest problem in France is that they haven't continued to reinvest in proper maintenance of that fleet. And so they've got a lot of old decrepit plants that are just falling apart in addition to sort of these weather-driven issues. But that's another matter. I think the overall takeaway is that we are not in the same position now globally as we were in the last big oil price spike of 2008 in the very way that you mentioned, that since then, 
much of the world has switched over their demand to natural gas. And everybody did that sort of at the same time. And so what we've done is we've made the whole world much more dependent on LNG than there were in 2008. And it's the shortage of that LNG capacity now as a way of replacing pipeline gas from Russia in specific that is really leading to some of these other effects of high grid power prices across Europe. And so again, I think we're looking at a situation here where global governments are going to have to respond. And that leads me to the next topic, I think, of command capitalism, which is what we talked about with Kevin Book of Clearview Energy Partners in episode 181, the episode right before this. With Kevin, we discussed how the world's governments are increasingly reaching out for direct interventions in their energy markets. And I guess we got to put quotes around markets now to try to avoid social unrest and economic destruction and what all that means for the transition. In that conversation, we went over a bunch of cases in point, the SPR releases we just talked about, but also Germany having to bail out Uniper because it was now upside down in its cash flow situation with high gas prices. France now actually fully nationalizing its utility EDF because it just cannot manage the expense of trying to keep its nuclear fleet running. Italy imposing gasoline price caps. In the UK, we have the regulator Ofgem having to move customers to new retail energy providers after their providers went belly up. And by the way, while all that's going on, the companies that went bust, their executives walked away with millions. <laughs> so, And then we've seen a bunch of governments, the UK, South Africa, Pakistan, etc., saying that they're going to directly own and build new nuclear plants because the private sector wants none of it. And of course, here in California, we recently saw the passage of AB 205, which featured just an unprecedented level of intervention in just a whole slew of different ways in California energy markets. One has to look at all this and wonder if the state utility regulator here in California, the CPUC, or for that matter, any utility regulator anywhere is really prepared to take on the challenges of the energy transition amid all of the market turmoil we've been seeing now, especially with the Russian invasion of Ukraine exacerbating everything, and let alone whether we can keep expecting to let markets and not direct interventions guide us through this future. So what are your thoughts on that question? Are we about to see the states or maybe nation states taking a more active hand in guiding their energy destinies and perhaps a diminished role for utility regulatory commissions or other energy regulators? So let's step back a little bit because I think there's a distinction that's important to make at this point in the conversation. And that's that markets are human constructs. We create markets, we design markets. They can be designed well, they can be designed poorly. And sometimes they can be designed well for a set of conditions that no longer hold. And so we then have to adapt to change the way the markets are designed and the way they operate. So I think just talking about markets versus regulation, I think doesn't address that key point, which is that what kind of markets? How should markets be designed? There's always going to be these questions around designing markets to achieve our goals. And one of our goals is low cost energy. Another goal is reduced emissions. And another goal is not having these kind of discontinuities and disruptions that we're seeing, for example, in Texas now, where the markets are just leading to outcomes that are causing a lot of pain and suffering. 
And so I think that this question of market design is something that people need to confront head on. It's really, really important. And that's not meddling in markets. That's designing markets sensibly to accomplish our goals, which is what we're supposed to be doing. It's what we do anyway, whether we admit it or not. By default, there's no other way around it. You have to design the markets to accomplish your goals. So I've often thought that more regulation is needed in general. Once you have these markets designed, I've often thought there needs to be more regulation, but I'd like to call it well-regulated capitalism rather than command capitalism. And I view this as something we need to learn how to do a whole lot better. When we're facing the climate crisis, when we're facing the transition away from conventional fuels, we're going to have to learn how to harness the dynamism of markets, but direct them in a way that leads to the the outcome which we want, which is reducing emissions as quickly as we possibly can. And so people who say that we just need to let the markets work, they're ignoring the design question. They're also ignoring the fact that if you just leave markets on their own, we end up with lead in children's toys and polluted rivers and lakes that catch on fire. And that's not a world that I want to live in. And we always need to think about whether the societal questions around harnessing technology and private enterprise are being addressed. The private enterprise is really good at picking winners to maximize private benefit, but they don't in general focus on societal benefit. And we need someone to be looking out for those societal questions. And only government can do that for certain kinds of problems. One kind of problem, environmental problems. We need government to internalize externalities. For social problems, they need to think about things like inequality and make sure that our tax system is not giving undue advantage to very wealthy people, this kind of thing. But only government can do those things. The private sector can't. And that's why I get a little bit upset when people start talking about, well, the government shouldn't be picking winners. Well, if you believe that, then only winners that are winners for the private sector are going to win. And that's not what we need. We actually need somebody to be looking out for societal good. And yes, we need portfolio approach. We need to make sure that people are investing in a bunch of different zero emission options because some of them are going to go bust and that's the way it goes. But we really need to get away from this foolish idea that government shouldn't be picking winners. Government should be picking a set of portfolio options that are more likely to lead to a good societal outcome. And that to me is the most important thing to take when you start talking about government regulation. You need to make sure that somebody's looking out for society. I mean, I definitely agree with all those points. I think that's a very fair critique. And I think our markets definitely do need more thoughtful redesigns, probably in a number of different ways. But going back to some of the examples that I mentioned a moment ago, Germany having to bail out a major utility, France having to bail out a major utility, Italy imposing gas price caps because people just simply cannot afford the actual price of gasoline right now. Dozens and dozens of utility retailers in the UK going belly up. These aren't things that are easily addressed with some tweak to a market. I mean, these are things that governments have no choice, I think, but to step in and intervene 
in some way just to kind of keep the train on the tracks. And that's, to me, kind of a materially different situation than I've ever seen before. Yeah, and I think we're going to see more of that. We're living in a world where multiple crises are happening. Yeah. We're going to happen at once. And we're going to have to get a bunch more nimble at how we respond to these things. And given the failure of COVID response, for example, we need to get better at this. We need to think more clearly about it. We need to get better at responding to crises in a way that's that's constructive and that doesn't kind of move against other societal goals that we have. And unfortunately, the political system, as you point out, is not particularly good at dealing with these crises in a way that makes longer term sense. They're more kind of reactive. And that's a problem. We got to fix that. Yeah. I mean, everybody's a free market advocate until you have riots in the streets. And then it's like, <laughs> call out the police and put the riot down or something, right? Like right, uh, right. those market-based principles are easily thrown under the bus when things really get tough. Yeah, sure. In past shows, we've talked about the idea that maybe in some cases, good old fashioned regulation for utilities actually would be better. But you're pointing out some cases where the regulation is also failing. Yeah, The markets can fail, but the regulation can also fail. And so we've got to get a whole lot smarter in a bunch of different areas if we're going to respond to these crises in any sort of a sensible way. And that's, to me, it's one of the biggest challenges of the climate problem is that climate is going to stress all of our current systems to the limit. And we need to figure out ways to make those systems respond better in the face of crisis. And it's going to be a challenge. And I don't know, can humanity learn to deal with this level of complexity? Steven Schneider used to talk about, can democracy handle complexity? And that was really the right question. Yeah. Because we're going to see a whole lot of complexity yeah. with all these different stressors on the system. We're already seeing it, but we're going to see a whole lot more. So that's why I like people to kind of step back and think about design of markets, but also design of regulation design of government. Yeah. What we need is smart design of all those things. And there's a great book that I like to recommend to people called Reinventing the Bazaar. The author is Macmillan, and it's a classic book. It talks about different kinds of markets and how they're structured and what leads them to work well or to not work well. And it's really, it's a fascinating read from someone who knows the area in great detail. But that's, to me, it's instead of having these mindless debates about more government, less government, no, better government yeah. and more markets or less markets, no, better markets. And so that's really, to me, the discussion we need to have is how can we design our society, design our markets, design our regulation, design our governments in ways that will make them more resilient in the face of the challenges we're going to see in the next 10 or 20 years. Yep. I would agree with all those points, although I would caution that it's easier to think about redesigning those things when you're not in a crisis situation. When you're in a crisis situation, which much of the world is, you just kind of reach for the nearest Band-Aid you can get your hands on. And sadly, yes, it's hard to use that moment to say, you know, we should just all step back and rethink about it, you know, <laughs> how we do our markets. And that's when people say, but there's barbarians at the gate. We don't have time for that right now. I really wonder, I mean, this is one of those things that I just kind of muse about in my spare moments to just think, where is this all going? 
if you can imagine an increasing demand on government to intervene in these various markets. One of the points that came up in my discussion with Kevin in that last episode was you can imagine a world in which more and more governments basically choose to circle the wagons, close their borders, and just take care of their own needs. Yep. And so they're withdrawing from global trade, and that would actually have the effect of making this whole situation worse. I mean, just one case in point that just pops into mind, although there's many others, is I've seen a lot of calls from people in Australia saying, why are we exporting so much LNG when we've got a price problem on our hands here at home? We should just be consuming our own LNG and letting the rest of the world sort it out. Well, you can see where that kind of thinking could come into play in every country if things get tighter and more difficult, in which case we could have a major surge of resource nationalism, which would ultimately just make the whole situation worse for everyone. Well, I think that it's true in the short term. I agree with your concern. It is potentially an issue in the short term. But if you had resource nationalism that led people to invest massively in solar and wind, for example, in storage and, and efficiency, then that would actually reduce the pressures Yes, in key countries. So I think it comes down to this idea, and this is something Saul Griffith has been talking about a lot, which is that this climate problem and the energy problem writ large is the problem of substituting capital for fuels. And we need to figure out ways to use the technology we have to invest in capital that will have steady costs that will not be subject to the fluctuations in fuel prices. Because ultimately, that's, that's the risk of being dependent on fossil fuels. And it's not being dependent on other people's fossil fuels that makes it a risk. It's actually being dependent at all on fossil fuels because any fuel that's traded in global markets subjects you to that risk of price increases. So the solution ultimately is invest in technology that is not dependent on those global markets. So in a way, the resource nationalism, if it goes towards solar and wind, it's better. The situation will ultimately work out in a better way. That's a great point. And as you say, efficiency. You know, I think one of the most important things that pretty much any government could do at this point, because the whole world has a fleet of really leaky buildings, <laughs> is to just focus on that. Stop the leaks, improve the thermal envelopes of all of our built environment. That would be a huge step in the right direction. And also accelerating the transition to EVs and getting a bunch of old, inefficient cars to be scrapped. Yeah. That's another thing that I think comes into these discussions or should come into these discussions is that there's a bunch of existing capital that's just going to have to be scrapped. Yeah. We're long past the point where we can rely on natural replacement cycles. We've dithered so long in dealing with the climate crisis that some existing capital will have to be scrapped. It's very clear. Yeah. And so that's another thing that, again, it's like a medium term thing. It's not something that will help tomorrow, but we need to start figuring out ways to get those gas guzzlers off the road and to retire coal plants as quickly as we can. Shut them down. That's where we're, these people who argue about the transition has to take decades because all transitions take decades. Like, well, in the past, we didn't, we didn't do anything. It just kind of happened organically. Well, it doesn't have to happen organically. 
we can actually make decisions to accelerate the process. And that's what we're going to need to do. Yeah. Well, you know, these questions of control and intervention suggest another topic that we've discussed in a number of shows over the past year. And that's where the energy transition is going, because there's quite a range of opinion about that. We've discussed various angles on that question in a number of episodes over the past year, like episode 159, where we spoke with Matt Ives of that Oxford team about their modeling of technology learning curves, which ultimately had a very bullish view on the transition. Episode 169 with Jessica Jewell on her work comparing historical transitions to the current one as a way of asking how feasible is the transition that we now need to do, which really pointed up, I think, a valid point that is a lot of the targets that we've set for ourselves in terms of transition are much more aggressive than anything we've ever done before. And so we need to be aware that this is really a tall order. Episode 166, we spoke with the IEA's Christoph McLeod on their climate scenarios and how feasible or difficult it will be to limit warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees. And in episode 178, just recently, we spoke with Greg Nemet on how the transition will unfold and how much of it will actually be kind of bottom-up and unplanned and chaotic as opposed to carefully planned or executed. So what are your thoughts about the speed and the trajectory of the transition and what we should expect in the coming years? I think it's very clear that we're not doing enough. It's very clear that what we need to do to hit one and a half C is to move much more rapidly than we've ever moved before. And I think a lot of politicians and other important actors in the society would love for that not to be the case. And they keep grasping at various straws, whether it's biomass CCS or direct air capture of carbon. They want to grasp at these straws that would allow them to just not change what we're doing in any radical sort of way. But I think it's very clear now that we're going to have to make some big changes and move much more quickly yeah. than we've ever done before. A lot of these people point to Vaclav Smil and they say, well, you know, energy transitions have taken such a long time and that's the way it has to be. And, and this is just not true. And I wish that people would push back more on this because past transitions happened organically. We allowed the incumbent actors to use their low marginal costs and other market domination to slow the progress of competitive fuels. But we don't have to allow that. And we can put coal plants on a rapid retirement schedule. We can prevent the construction of new fossil infrastructure. We can pay people to scrap their old vehicles. So we can make things happen a whole lot faster. We have to acknowledge, though, that this is an emergency. We need to act like it's an emergency. And that, to me, is the thing that's been missing, is that the politicians would really love it if they didn't need to change what they're doing. And they're perfectly happy to make these long-term goals because they're not going to be in office in 20 years. Yeah. But I am a strong advocate of turning those long-term goals into annual goals. So you can look at where we need to be in 2040 or 2050 and then work backwards and say, okay, what do we need to do next year to do that if we just do the same thing every year? Well, what if we don't do that next year? Well, we have to do even more the next year. So I feel like... Part of the framing here has to be a shift towards an emergency framing because it is an emergency and a shift towards more immediate targets derived from the longer term targets, but immediate like next year. What do you need to do next year if we're going to 
hit this target. A lot of people, they've just been able to kind of slide past this and not not have accountability for their long-term commitments. They just let things continue to slide. And that's a real problem. So what are some of the other reasons why energy transitions could happen a lot faster? One is this question about actively managing the transition and retiring existing capital. Another important one is that past energy transitions did not have information technology. And that's something that I think a lot of folks don't seem to get yet, is that our abilities to meter things, our abilities to understand fast-changing systems, our abilities to reorganize our, our companies and our governments, we're now able to do that stuff much more rapidly than we could before because of information technology. And so I think that that is something that people need to keep in mind is that it's an advantage. I call it our ace in the hole, but information technology is our ace in the hole. And this is because it allows us to substitute smarts for parts. It allows us to measure things. It allows us to restructure our organizations. It allows us to digitize activities. It allows us to substitute bits for atoms. So we don't need to go to work all the time. We can telecommute. And all these things we could never do before. So that's the second major issue. And then the last is that, and this is something that I think Smill is not particularly sophisticated about, is that manufactured technologies have learning effects associated with their costs. And what we mean by that is that for every doubling of cumulative production of a mass-produced technology, you get a relatively predictable cost reduction of 10 to 30% per unit for every doubling. And that's true for every manufactured product that we know of. And so for solar, those learning rates are 20 to 25%. For batteries, they're on an even steeper learning curve. For wind, it's a little bit slower because it's a more mature technology, but there's still learning rates. So if we double our production, costs will come down. So it's not just a question of how would this happen without us intervening. It's actually a question of if we decide to really accelerate production of these technologies, how much will costs come down and how much easier will it make the transition? Yeah. And so those are the kinds of questions, those three things, forcing the transition, managing it, information technology, and then truly accurately as best you can incorporating learning effects in our projections. Those three things make me much more optimistic that we can move more quickly than people like Smill and other pessimists say. Yeah, and I think Greg Nemet would certainly agree with that view. And again, I think it's one of the reasons why we should be happy to see the Defense Production Act being invoked here to really try to stimulate a whole variety of technologies from just basic mining of raw materials like lithium to processing capacity for these various minerals to battery manufacturing to wind and solar efforts of all kinds. And as we discussed in a recent episode on offshore wind, major investments being made in port facilities that are designed to install offshore wind. So all of these kinds of activities ultimately get you to that driving down the cost curve for these technologies or increasing the speed at which we're moving down the learning curves. Yeah. And that's all to the good. I think it's happening later than it <laughs> would have in a more ideal world. 
And I think there's still a lot of intractable issues that are going to have to be dealt with in a command fashion. But but I am happy to see these kinds of investments being made, and particularly with respect to battery storage. Although that is another topic that I wanted to tackle with you here. Storage is one of the critical requirements of the energy transition, obviously, as we try to enable greater growth in wind and solar and variable producers like that, where you want to be able to store that electricity for later use. And we've seen a number of large battery storage projects announced over the past year worldwide. And so that's definitely happening at a much bigger scale now. Although there are still a lot of supply chain problems restraining the deployment of batteries, I think generally we're going in the right direction, especially with these kind of stimulative investments from the U.S. federal government. And we did two shows about storage in the past year. So I'd like to recap those and kind of get your take. And in episode 161... We spoke with Nate Blair of NREL about his team's recently completed storage futures study, which had some pretty interesting findings. And one of them that really stood out for me is that they found no need for more than about four hours of battery storage until the whole electricity system gets to like an 80% decarbonized grid or whatever. So it seems that the assumed need for long-term seasonal storage that has worried a lot of analysts is still well in the future, as far as the NREL researchers are seeing it. And then I found another reason to question how much seasonal storage we'll really need in episode 170 when we spoke with Daniel Sneum about district heating and cooling. That conversation confirmed one of my long-standing suspicions, which is that the transition modelers have been somewhat careless about assuming that all space heating and cooling loads will move over to the grid and become a major driver of this assumed need for seasonal electricity storage. They assume that the heat pumps will dominate space heating and cooling as we quote-unquote electrify everything. But about half of our total energy consumption currently goes to space heating and cooling. And that may not all need to be electrified, but rather met with very low cost, much lower cost, and low tech, and high exergy (laughs) solutions based on low temperature thermal storage, not based on battery storage. So I'm increasingly of the view that much of what has been widely assumed about the role of battery storage and the requirements for battery storage as the transition proceeds is wrong. That is, we may need seasonal storage, but not until we get to a grid that's mostly decarbonized, and then we may find that the best way to provide that seasonal storage is not with grid-scale batteries, but with distributed, low-temperature thermal storage and things like district heating and cooling or, for that matter, sources of cold storage. What are your thoughts on that question? Well, I would start by saying that it's not just thermal storage that is a solution here. We know that the heat provided by natural gas furnaces, for example, is a very substantial part of the peak demand of the overall energy system. So it's hard to meet that demand with electricity unless you're able to shift things around a bit. And thermal storage is one way to do that. There's a very famous historical argument between Amory Lovins and Hans Bethe about seasonal thermal storage and the economics of that. And Amory was quite correct about that. That was in the mid 70s. And even then it was something that made some sense. As soon as you start looking at thermal storage for multiple buildings, the economics become much better. And so the bigger you can make your reservoir, 
the better off you are because the surface area of the reservoir goes up as the square of the radius of the thing, the first order. The volume goes up as the cube. So you get less and less of the leakage area for the thermal leakage as you get bigger. So the bigger you can make these, the better off you are. So there's a lot of those kind of innovations. It's not super high tech. Combining thermal storage with heat pumps is another area where people need to start getting more creative. But it's definitely something we know how to do. Another area, though, of course, is making buildings that are so low energy that their peak demand for heating or cooling is very low. And so that's actually an important strategy that's part of this whole discussion. It shouldn't just be assuming that buildings have to be as bad as they always have been. If we start building more houses with a passive house sort of design, in many cases don't even need a heating system, then of course your needs go down significantly. So I think, I think your instinct is right. I think that just a one-to-one -one replacement of the current types of heating and cooling solutions is not necessarily going to be the best way to meet those demands. But it is, as you say, kind of the simple assumption that people have been making. And I think it's important to kind of step back and look at that whole system and say, okay, if we're going to redesign this whole system, how are we going to do it in a way that is the least cost way to do it? And in many cases, the least cost way is going to be to reduce the demand to make the houses or the commercial buildings much more efficient. Mm -hmm. And that will allow you to avoid some of these capacity issues that you're pointing to. Yeah, it makes you wish that there was such a thing as like a cash for clunkers program, but for buildings. <laughs> yeah, well, you're going to have to do certainly deep retrofitting. Yeah. There are certainly ways to do that. And that happens relatively frequently with commercial buildings. Like, you know, it's kind of 15-year cycle there because the retrofitting is happening not really for energy reasons, but for commercial reasons. Things need to be modern. Things need to be new and fancy. And when you do those sorts of complete retrofits, then you have an opportunity to fix the energy systems as well. But you have to set up the incentives right so that companies are willing and interested in doing that. Mm -hmm. And that's not easy to do. Yeah. So I think that your instinct is right. I think that the questions about thermal storage need to be more fully explored. There was a prototype in Canada of 50 or 100 houses, I think, where they did a kind of seasonal thermal storage. Because in the summer, large parts of Canada are warm enough that you can heat up that thermal storage pretty well for four months. And then if it's well insulated, that'll stay nice and warm. And in the wintertime, you can draw on that. So that works pretty well. And then there's these questions about district heating. The Europeans have gotten very sophisticated about district heating. And that's something that Americans are far behind on. Yeah, But it's something that we used to be able to do it. In New York, in Boston, there are steam grids, some of which still operate. In Ontario, where we lived for a couple of years, in Toronto, there's actually a loop that goes into Lake Ontario for cooling in the summer. Right. And so they actually, they cool some of the large commercial buildings using that cool lake water. Exactly. And so a lot of these things are very site-specific. Like you need to figure things out in a particular place. But once you do that, you realize that there are oftentimes a lot of options for thermal, moving heat around or coolness around in ways that are cheaper and easier than just 
putting up, you know, uh, an air conditioner on top of the building. But people need to be smart. They need to design things in a sensible way. Exactly. And as far as that goes, I think low tech is a great <laughs> virtue. Like, Yeah, we know how to do it. Well, it also it tends to be a lot cheaper than high tech, right? Yeah. I mean, I know I've mentioned it several times on the show in the past, but one of the first instances that I saw of this was at the Floriade Festival in Netherlands, where they had built an artificial aquifer underground, and they put a lid on it, and then they put just conventional solar hot water modules, which are very low-tech, on top of it, and then they're collected heat with those modules all summer and pumped that heat into that aquifer underground, and then they pulled the heat out of it during the wintertime to keep the greenhouses warm. Yeah. So super low tech and very cheap, really. The, the most expensive bit probably was digging the hole yep. to put in the aquifer and lining it. So these are the kinds of solutions that I think could really be explored a lot more than they are. And it would really cut down the alleged need for battery storage in the future as we get to a highly decarbonized grid. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's something that a lot of analysts have just not even thought about. I mean, I can't tell yeah. you the number of studies I've seen where they don't even contemplate that. Right. And as a result, they come out with these absurd numbers about right. the need for battery storage, like assuming that the whole grid, that we're going to have to build enough battery capacity to power the entire grid for six straight weeks or something ridiculous like that. And that's just not how this is going to happen. I think that's a general problem. I think people, they have a hard time envisioning a world a lot different than what they now live in. Yeah. And you see it in the analysis of electricity grids. People say, oh, it's really hard to build transmission. Well, yes, and we need to fix that. But there are ways actually to get more power through existing transmission lines. And actually twice as much are some of the estimates that I've seen. So we need to get smarter about repurposing our capital and using it in ways that allow us then to transfer more power when we need it yeah. to different parts of the grid and get rid of artificial constraints. So a great example of artificial constraints for historical reasons is the lack of transmission going into Texas. That's a case. The Texans didn't want to be regulated by FERC, and so they tried to isolate their system. And they're now paying the price for not being able to bring in power from other places. But the bigger your grid is, the more options you have, the more diversity there is of sources, the more time diversity and geographic diversity. Yeah. And so we need to start thinking more clearly about these constraints that are kind of embedded in our systems for historical reasons, not any good reason, historical reasons, interest reasons, like the fact that somebody wanted to gain advantage from it. Those are dumb reasons. We can't afford to be using systems that have those kind of constraints built in anymore, and we need to figure out ways to get rid of them. Yeah. Well, switching topics here a bit, another of the recurring themes in our show over the past year has been the ways that the incumbents oftentimes the losers of the energy transition have worked to slow or delay or subvert or otherwise derail the transition. It was a core topic of episode 164, where we talked with Peter Newell about the political economy of transitions, with an emphasis on overcoming the resistance of the incumbents. And of course, it was a central theme of episode 177, where David Pomerantz of the Energy and Policy Institute walked us through some of the main tactics that utilities have used to stymie the transition and mislead the public. 
You remember, certainly, my rant about the whole First Energy Ohio story in last year's show. <laughs> oh, I do. Could never forget it. <laughs> and that story has just continued to expand and unfold, the gift that keeps on giving, revealing an ever-widening web of corruption really across the whole Ohio government. It's remarkable. And I think a lot of transition advocates, including me, by the way, have been a bit reluctant to spend much time and effort on the corrupt activities of the incumbents, partially because it's important to keep ourselves and everyone else focused on things that move the project of energy transition forward. Plus, some people still seem to think that the oil majors in particular, or maybe even some utilities, will eventually pivot to supporting the transition instead of just opposing it. But I'm actually more skeptical about that with every passing year. Me too. And now we have this brand new expose of Florida Power and Light done by journalists at The Guardian, the Orlando Sentinel and Herald, and I believe the Miami Herald, in which it has become clear that for years, FPL conducted a campaign to corrupt local media in order to present utility propaganda, to bribe and influence officials to support the utility's business, to stop the advance of solar power in Florida, to hire a fake candidate with the same last name as a pro-solar legislator <laughs> in order to confuse voters and steal votes away from the real candidate, and to set up a whole chain of dark money front groups to hide the utility's fingerprints on all of its dirty dealings. It's just an unbelievably ugly case that exemplifies many of the dirty tricks that we discussed in episode 177. And and I will link to all of those journalist stories in the show notes of this episode. But as David Pomerantz subsequently tweeted, quote, if the FBI keeps basically following accidental leads and investigative reporting into investigations of utilities, political corruption, and it keeps leading to indictments, maybe DOJ should start looking like proactively. <laughs> <laughs> And my takeaway from all of this is that it might be becoming a bit harder for utilities and other actors to get away with these corrupt activities, which I think in the past they were able to do in a pretty wholesale fashion just because nobody was watching them. And maybe we now have watchdog organizations and the press getting a bit more effective at exposing these rapacious mercenaries and calling them to account. Would you agree? Would you share my optimism on that or am I just kidding myself? Well, I think we might be getting a bit better, but I think most people have not yet confronted just how pervasive this corruption is. And that's a problem for the energy transition. And it kind of goes back to the, the old problem of scientists thinking they're engaging in a technical discussion around climate or energy when they're confronted by fake experts and people making stuff up. And the problem is we're confronted by the most powerful industry in human history. The fossil fuel industry has $5 trillion every year of revenue. And they use a small fraction of that, which for every other part of the society is a large amount of money to corrupt the system. And in this discussion, I'm kind of lumping utilities in there as well, because they're often supporting the use of fossil fuels in different places. So the issue is that much money creates problems for effective governance. And again, it comes back to this question of how do you have well-regulated capitalism, which we need to accomplish our societal goals, how do you have that when so much money is around corrupting effective governance? And that's something that we need to confront as a society. So it's more than just the energy transition. 
I think that there's a general issue with corruption in the society. We're so rich, we the United States, we Europe, we're so rich that we've kind of normalized a certain deference to money and to institutional power. And that only works as long as reality cooperates. And when there are intractable problems that require a societal response, we can't just let things continue on as they've been going because this corruption makes an effective response to climate, for example, really, really hard to do. So I hope you're right, but I would like to encourage anyone outraged by this, as I am and you obviously are, to figure out ways, even small ways, to fight back against this kind of corruption because we're, we're engaged in a fight against, the, as I said, the most powerful industry in human history. So it's a political fight. Yes, we need technical arguments. Yes, we need to be correct. We need to tell the truth about what's going on. But we also need to acknowledge that we're in a political fight. And there's a great article in the Annual Review of Energy and Environment in the last couple of years by Stoddard and a bunch of his colleagues. And this paper talks about the importance of power, the importance of power in explaining why we haven't bent the emissions curve. I've been at this for more than 30 years. We wrote our book on the first analysis of a 2C warming limit in 1989. So all this stuff has been well known for a long time, more than 30 years. We've made some progress, but really we're not close to getting on a trajectory to one and a half or 2C. And that speaks to ineffectiveness of our tactics in the face of this really well-organized and extremely powerful fossil fuel industry. Yeah. So I hope you're right, but we just have to get better at this. We need to fight against them at every turn Yeah. because they're corrupting the entire economy and we got to stop it. Totally agree. And in fact, we discussed a lot of those issues as well with Leah Stokes back in episode 121 in 2020. But I think you're right. I mean, this is a major issue we have to deal with if we want the transition to succeed. And I know that you addressed some other elements of that in your new book. And I want to talk about that. But first, I want you to just kind of introduce it. So this book, among other things, tackles the resistance and the corruption of certain players in the energy sector. It's titled Solving Climate Change, A Guide for Learners and Leaders. So why did you and your co-author write that book? And who do you want to influence with it? And what do you hope to influence them to do? So my co-author, Ian Monroe, and I wrote this book because we had previously taught a class a couple of times at Stanford called Implementing Climate Solutions at Scale. And we wanted to write down what we learned as part of that teaching effort as a textbook for other researchers and professors who might want to teach their students about the energy system and the energy transition. And the focus is really on understanding just how fast we need to change to hit one and a half or two C. And in the class, what we did was we encouraged the students to create projects for a geographic region, state, a country, sometimes companies. And we wanted them to hit net zero emissions by mid-century and to build up an action plan that would plausibly lead to that result. 
And that effort turned out to be very motivating for a lot of these students because they finally were getting a handle on just what it would take. And it's very rapid change, as we talked about earlier in this episode. It's unprecedented change, but it's also something that we need to do if we want to preserve a livable climate for our descendants. So the main focus is on understanding this rapid rate of change. And one of the areas that we spent time thinking about was the importance of elevating truth in these arguments. It's not just about technical issues. Ultimately, I've become convinced that this really is this political fight and we need to say something about it. We need to fight in a way that is appropriate and effective, recognizing that reality. And the Stoddard article that I mentioned explains why we failed to reduce emissions. And they have this great quote, which is the main reason, the serious societal problem, quote, a common thread that emerges across the reviewed literature is the central role of power manifest in its many forms. And so it isn't primarily about truth. We know the truth. We're emitting greenhouse gas emissions. It's warming the climate. It's us. It's bad. And if we don't do something, it's going to be even worse. We know we can do something about it, but we need to take action. So that's the reality. But in order to fix that problem, we have to confront this powerful industry and we need to do it very rapidly at an unprecedented pace. So that's the kind of backstory to this book. It'll be published by Institute of Physics Press towards the end of the year. We're just in the final editing process now, and we're going to give the book to the editor in a couple of weeks. So that's the, the current status of that. I love the ambition of it, but I have to question, who can you really influence this way? I mean, do you expect, uh, I don't know, Department of Justice officials to read this book or what? Influence is not my main issue. My issue is teaching students the rate of change that we need, because ultimately, we need people who are skilled to understand these issues. Other people are better at convincing political actors to do the right thing. But I wanted to at least write down the truth as I saw it and as Ian sees it to be clear about things. So I, I feel like part of our issue is that people are in institutions that make it difficult to speak clearly about the problems. And I now work for myself, so I don't have to care about institutional constraints. Amen, brother. Yeah, amen, amen. <laughs> so the first step is at least being able to state the truth clearly. And that's part of the reason why we wrote this chapter on elevating truth, because this is part of the problem, is that the entire debate about climate has been polluted by the fossil fuel money. Yeah, And it's been polluted for decades. And it's all very well documented. Naomi Oreskes has been on this beat for a long time. Ben Franta has been doing some great work recently yep. on this as well. And it's not just corrupting the debate, it's corrupting universities. Money corrupts. And that's really something that we have to figure out how to turn around because we have to move faster and we won't be able to if we let these folks continue to dominate these debates or at least muddy these debates. Because speed is everything. In, in the climate solutions, speed is everything. Mm -hmm. We have to get to zero emissions as quickly as we can. And anyone who's engaging in what Alex Steffen calls predatory delay right. is an enemy of the transition. 
Absolutely. And we have to stop them. So in chapter 11 of that book, which you titled Elevate Truth, you made some really useful points about how to deal with these opponents of the transition. So I wondered if you'd just highlight a few of those for our audience. So one of the things I think is that we have to stop treating the fossil fuel industry as legitimate participants in democratic debate mm. and start treating them like the threat to the global climate that they've been for decades. Yeah. And that means telling the truth about climate, rooting out fossil fuel corruption wherever we find it, mandating transparency and accurate disclosures, banning fossil fuel advertising, running countervailing public service announcements, and holding the industry accountable for self-interested lies everywhere we can. Hmm. That's going to be a bit of a problem for quite a few publications and even other energy podcasts that I could name that are funded by oil majors. Well, I'm just calling them as I see it. So I don't have to worry <laughs> about their problems. Yeah. And the transition problems of people who are reliant on fossil fuel money, that's something they need to think long and hard about because ultimately the money corrupts. Even if they're trying to do the right thing, the money corrupts. Totally agree. And that's part of the reason why this show has never had a sponsor or an advertiser. And we chose from day one to go the subscriber-supported route, even though it's a painfully slow way to build a business. <laughs> <laughs> but it is working, which I It is working. You for. Thank you. <laughs> so we have to root out corruption wherever we find it. Stating the truth, though, is not enough to win the battle. This is a political fight, and that means we have to confront powerful interests directly. There's no happy ending for the fossil fuel industry. Parts of it, there are people with expertise who will be good at things that are useful, like offshore oil platforms. I bet those skills will be very useful for offshore wind, at least some of them. The geothermal industry would love to get some of these petroleum engineers and other skilled people from the oil and gas industry to help them. So there will be some people and parts of the industry that can pivot, but the ultimate goal is that fossil fuels have to go away. We have to be done with fossil fuels. And that's a long-term goal, but it's something that has to happen. And I feel strongly that we need to keep our eye on that ball and not get distracted by the latest shiny object, mm -hmm. whether it's CCS or direct air capture or some of these other technological tricks that people are hanging on to as a way to avoid the difficult problem. The difficult problem is the fossil fuel industry has to go away. And it will happen over a few decades, but it has to go away. And that's the only way that we will preserve a livable climate. Yeah. So. There's no happy ending here. There's no, oh, we'll just come up with a compromise that everyone will be happy with. No, there's no alternative now. And so that's the reality that I think this fossil corruption has been trying to muddy up. And that's the reality that we need to kind of keep top of mind as we're talking about these issues, because that's the end point. That's where we need to get to. Yeah. And we have to root out corruption too, don't we? Yeah. And there's direct corruption. I mean, you've pointed out some of these in the utility industry. There's literally direct bribes to regulators and politicians and people in industry. And that's you know obviously a bad thing. That's not something in any industry that's helpful. You talked about Ohio, Florida. There's a bunch of other places. I'm sure it's far more widespread than what these individual cases 
would indicate. But there's also this kind of problem of soft corruption and funding fake experts, subtly influencing university research through major donations, mm. trumpeting misleading research to foster predatory delay. These are all kind of somewhat under the radar tactics. And you know, it's not to say that all fossil fuel industry research is bad. There are certainly people of integrity who are doing important work funded by the fossil fuel industry. But when the money is so vast, it affects how university administrators behave. So individual academics, they're stubborn and pigheaded and they're going to do exactly what they're going to do. But I think there's this kind of subtle effect on the institutions that is a form of soft corruption that I think we need to figure out how to combat. Yeah, in fact, that's a topic that came up in episode 109, Big Oil's Climate Denial Machine, I titled that one. Uh, so that was November 2019, where we talked about how ExxonMobil was doing some of the best research on climate change 40 years ago. Um, yeah. yep. So there certainly is good research and good information there, but then how those organizations can then change their point of view or change their management or just decide that they're going to take a different path. <laughs> yeah, so there's another example that occurs to me is there are these people who publish treatises that are very sympathetic to the fossil fuel point of view, the moral case for fossil fuels. There's the right. Epstein, there's, oh, God. there's Lomborg, these other people. It's a lucrative Ugh. business model to flatter the status quo interests. You betcha. You can do very well for yourself. But that's corruption. I'll bet you those guys made way more money than I did yeah. doing oh, what they do. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So they're getting paid very well to foster predatory delay. And that's, yeah. it's hard to know if that's soft or hard corruption, but it's definitely corruption. So another area relates to kind of the systemic corruption of politics. Hmm. When you have unlimited contributions, it allows anyone, any company, any very wealthy person to have disproportionate influence. And the Supreme Court enshrining Citizens United as the law of the land in the US, that's a major problem because there's a huge mm -hmm. asymmetry. Somebody who has billions of dollars is gonna have way more influence than individual voters. And so their priorities are gonna be very different. Their priorities are not societal benefit with very few exceptions. Their priorities are making more money. Yeah, And so unless we have real democracy, one person, one vote, limited contributions so that people can't, maybe no contributions, I don't know, but something so that you don't have this fire hose of private money corrupting the political process, it's going to be very hard to implement rapid systemic change. So people think that that's not a climate issue. It is a more general issue, but it gets in the way of climate. If your political system is completely beholden to fossil fuel interests, then you just can't move as quickly as you need to, to solve the problem. Yeah. So what are your thoughts about how we can counteract all this corruption and the misleading propaganda of these bad actors? So I listed a few, and I'll say them again, because I think they're important for people to figure out how to implement. There's mandating transparency and accurate disclosures. So in investment literature, there's already mandates for certain kinds of accuracy. Mm -hmm. We have similar sorts of disclosures for, for drugs and other things in the society. But I think we need to be a whole lot more clear about who's funding what 
and what positions are being taken at the behest of the fossil fuel industry. So we need to be very clear about that stuff. We have to think about for cigarettes, we ban cigarette advertising at a certain point. Do we need to ban fossil fuel advertising? Mm. That's a good question. That is a good question. We need to have that conversation. Yeah. Because the companies think it works because they're spending millions and millions of dollars to advertise. So they think it works. Yeah. So if it works, maybe we need to stop it because what works for the fossil fuel industry is using more fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And. That's the conversation we need to have. And then, of course, there's always the possibility of public service announcements. People, I guess there's research on the effect of these kind of things. But I think having public service announcements is actually, if they're designed effectively, I think they could actually make a difference. There's plenty of misinformation out there. One of my kids came back from camp and they said that the counselor had told them that batteries were worse for climate than than burning gasoline. So that's a little anecdote, yep. but it's one of those things. A lot of people believe a lot of wrong stuff. And so we need to start fighting that. Well, because they get exposed to those messages by people that have paid to put those messages in the media right. that they're consuming. Exactly right. So I think being conscious of these issues starts with naming them. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm being really clear. If I worked for an institution Maybe if I had tenure, I could be a little more free. But if I worked for a government institution or a company, I would have to be less clear about this. Mm -hmm. So I can. And so at least the first step is let's call this stuff out and be clear about what it is. And I also want people to understand that this is just one chapter of the book. It's not the most important chapter even. I mean, it's like one of eight pillars of climate action. We talk about all the technical issues and so on. But this is something later in the book that we felt important to lay out clearly so that people could start having these conversations. Yeah. Because this is all conscious strategy. The fossil fuel industry has done all this consciously. They've known for decades that fossil fuels warm the earth. They've known <laughs> yeah. since the 60s. 50s even. Absolutely. So this is all deliberate. Yeah. And so if you're dealing with deliberate political strategy, it's a very different thing than if you're dealing with a good faith technical debate. And that's been a mistake that a lot of scientists have made over the years. Less so now, I think people are realizing. But I think it's important to lay it out clearly that we're in a political fight and we need to figure out effective ways to fight politically and stop these guys. That's an excellent point, And I think an underappreciated one, because in order to understand how political the fight actually is and to understand how well-organized and deliberate the opposition is, you'd have to have spent a significant amount of time studying things like politics and lobbying and political economy and so on. And a lot of scientists have not studied those things. Yeah, that's right. They've studied science. Yeah. And good. good for them. Yeah. Well, but on the one hand, you have these extremely powerful, extremely wealthy companies that have spent vast amounts of money hiring top talent to create and peddle their propaganda deliberately to confuse the public, to confuse legislators, to muddy the waters of understanding about what's actually happening. And then at the same time, to pay lots and lots of money to lobbyists and to other folks who work in places like Capitol Hill 
who are especially talented and skilled at influencing the levers of power. So that's what you're up against. And the pro-transition forces have almost none of that. I mean, we've got a few scrappy little trade organizations that have extremely limited reach in terms of their lobbying and political power. We have a few scrappy little organizations like Energy and Policy Institute, which are out there providing a very important and critical watchdog function, but they're not being funded to the tune of tens of millions of dollars a year. Their executives are not getting paid a million plus a year. And so it's very much a lopsided story as far as how the political side of this is being prosecuted. And I think we really, really have a major problem that we have to deal with there. I don't know what all the answers are, but I think you've just offered a very useful starting point. I think ultimately political leaders have to be more clear about what is happening and what's at stake. And I think there are a few high-level politicians are doing that. I think Sheldon Whitehouse has been very good Absolutely. in explaining what's going on, yep. the senator in Ohio. So he's also been very good. I think that the leadership of the Democratic Party has not been as good, and they're doing things like talking about an all-of-the-above energy strategy still, Ugh. which makes me crazy. Yeah. But if you want to talk about all-of-the-above emissions reductions, okay, but no. <laughs> Anyway, so I think the leadership of the Democratic Party needs to take on more seriously the fact that climate is an emergency. I think that's part of the framing that has to go on here is that this is an emergency. Yeah. These people are in the way. The fire is started in the building. We want to get people out. We want to put out the fire. And these people are in the way. Yeah. And we need to make sure that we get people out of that building. Well, you know, I've also grown increasingly interested in how we can deal with these opponents of the energy transition even more directly. And one of those ways is pushing for just early retirement of coal-fired power plants, even if it means using the public purse to buy them out in order to shut them down. That's something we discussed with Justin Gway in episode 160. What do you think of that strategy? I think it's great and it's really important. So this is something I wrote a book in 2012 called Cold Cash, Cool Climate. And that was back when I was a lot more optimistic about entrepreneurial innovation and capitalism solving the climate problem somewhat more on its own. But in that, I did a schematic calculation and I showed that even then, 10 years ago, we were going to need to do early retirements to hit one and a half C. So it's been mm -hmm. very clear for a long time that we needed to do early retirements. Yeah. So I think it's very important to do this. Saul Griffith talks about this as well. And it's terrible, right? You don't want to give these bad guys money. But at the end of the day, if you shut down the plants, they're gone. Right. They're not coming back. And that's the important thing. They have to be shut down. We need to, we need to shut them down and then deconstruct them in a way and recycle all their materials but they need to be shut down because if they're still there and operational, the temptation will be to use them. Mm -hmm. And so coal plants, shut them down. Gas clunkers, buy them, recycle them. So we're going to need to accelerate that. And that means, again, some people are going to lose. There are investors now in new or relatively new fossil infrastructure that are going to be holding stranded assets before you know it. Yeah. And they're going to lose money and they're not going to be happy about that. And they're going to cause a lot of issues because of it. But the important thing that 
one issue is we got to buy these people out. The other is it's much easier to stop a new thing from being built than it is to shut something down that already exists and is generating profits. So not only do we need to buy out these folks and shut down this old infrastructure, but we need to stop building new infrastructure that's fossil-based. And that's, again, it's a very clear finding from the IPCC, AR6. It's a clear finding from the International Energy Agency studies recently. We're going to have to stop building. And that's something that I think, again, politicians, they haven't really internalized this idea that we're going to have to stop. Mm-hmm. We have to stop oil and gas leases on federal lands. We have to stop construction of new pipelines. Now, we have to build a lot more electric transmission and build a whole lot of other stuff. So that's great. We got to do that. But in terms of fossil infrastructure, we got to stop building it. And there might be a few exceptions here and there, but for the most part, we have to stop. And that the system is addicted to the fire hose of fossil fuel money. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to get people to stop, but we have to stop. Well, you know, you mentioned the IPCC a moment ago. Another major story of the past year was the publication of its updated climate framework. And for those who may not be familiar, the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And they released the three major component reports of their sixth assessment, also known as AR6, during the past year. And we did two episodes on AR6 this year. We did episode 172 with Benjamin Silvacool and episode 173 with Glenn Peters. And one question that I asked both of them is how they thought the IPCC's messaging and recommendations had changed since AR5 was released eight years ago. So I'd like to put the same question to you. What do you think the notable changes were from AR5 to AR6? One of the great areas of progress has been in open data and modeling. And the scientists and the folks who run the IPCC have done a great thing in terms of making the data even more available than it was in the past. So, for example, if you want to, you can go to the CIASA database, which I think you're going to put in the show notes. You can download all these hundreds of model runs from AR6. There's also AR5. There's a 1.5C report. The newer runs are more extensive. The outputs are more extensive. There's more material there that you can use to do your analysis. So it's really been impressive to watch and actually heartening to watch the level of sophistication that the scientists have put into making their data and modeling available. Mm -hmm. And that's a core value of science. It's a core indicator of true scientific activity that everything is available. Now, There are all sorts of things that are buried in models that are a little harder to get at. You need to run the model. You need to understand those details. But in terms of actually looking at a whole bunch of different model results and testing and understanding those things, it's exemplary what they've done. There's always more you can do, but it's really good. I agree. I mean, I think a lot of that science, at least for the layperson or for the maybe the person who's new to this kind of modeling, was a bit of a black box. And so it's nice to see that being made available now. So that's something for which they should be commended. Mm-hmm. Another thing, and this is kind of a, a thing I've come to recently as I was writing this book with Ian, there's a kind of convention in how people talk about emiss- greenhouse gas emissions, warming agents, and they tend to talk about CO2, carbon dioxide, the biggest problem 
biggest driver of emissions and warming. And then they talk about other gases. And this is kind of a historical thing. This is the way people have always done it. But what I've come to is that this convention actually makes it a little harder to understand solutions to the problem. And so one of the things that I'm trying to encourage the modelers to do and anyone else who works in this area is to separate fossil-related emissions from non-fossil-related emissions. Mm. So fossil emissions, there's CO2, there's fossil CO2, but there's also industrial process emissions of CO2 from steel making, from aluminum making, from cement. And so the ways that you would solve the problem of these non-fossil emissions involve much more process innovation, technology change, shifting your production processes. The fossil emissions, we need to adopt technologies that reduce emissions, but it's just a different kind of problem. And so intellectually, to me, it makes much more sense to talk about fossil emissions, non-fossil emissions. Same for natural gas. There's a bunch of fossil emissions associated with the natural gas industry and also the oil industry and also the coal industry. All that stuff is fossil emissions. If you do less, if you consume fewer fossil fuels, guess what? Lots of that methane is going to go away. The non-fossil emissions are in agriculture for methane. And there are some industrial process emissions, some other areas, very different ways to reduce those emissions, very different policy responses. Same for nitrous oxides. Almost all of the F gases, the other gases, those are non-fossil. But the point is that's a kind of assumption that people have made and that has affected how data are presented and it affects how people think about the problem. And so as a modeler, as a data person, one of the things that I think would be effective for folks who are doing this kind of analysis to think much more clearly about fossil versus non-fossil emissions. That will help everyone understand the problem a whole lot better. Yeah, I agree. Well, what about AR7? What do you think they should do differently in the next iteration of the framework? Well, I think a lot more detailed data on the electricity sector would be helpful. That, I think, given how important electrification is and in the expansion of non-fossil generation, that would be extremely useful. Uh, I think being more clear about some of the drivers of the emissions. So we've done some work on decomposition of scenarios to help people understand what's driving the results. And so making the data available to be able to do those kind of comparisons more easily would be really, really helpful. All right. Well, for a final topic, I'd like to discuss the latest perspectives on climate models. You've been working on a paper that continues your ongoing work on the decomposition of climate models. In 2019, you and your co-authors published a paper titled Inside the Black Box, Understanding Key Drivers of Global Emissions Scenarios. And you and I first discussed that back in 2018 in episode 78, which was our three-year anniversary show. This year, you and your co-authors published a new paper that expands on that work titled Exploring the Black Box, Applying Macro Decomposition Tools for Scenario Comparisons. So what's this new paper about? So we decided to apply the tools from our 2019 article to two aggressive emissions reduction scenarios, both of which would hit 1.5C. So very rapid emissions reductions. One was by Van Vuren and his co-authors. That one included some CCS, 
And then there was one, the low energy demand scenario by Arnulf Grubler and his co-authors. That one had no CCS at all and focused on reducing the energy intensity of the energy system. Okay. And we thought that we could learn something useful by applying these tools and comparing these aggressive scenarios. Mm -hmm. Because to me, the aggressive scenarios are the really interesting ones. Those are the ones that kind of test the limits of what might be possible. Right. And they give us a way to kind of get visibility into, well, what do you have to do to get there? Yeah. What kind of compromises are there? What trade-offs are there? And so that's why we wanted to focus on those two scenarios. Now, one of the things that is interesting about the way these IPCC scenarios work is that they treat primary energy from non-combustion energy sources differently than the IEA does, than the EIA does, than British Petroleum does. Really? Yeah, this is the whole question about what's called direct equivalence. Okay. So if you have a non-combustion resource, wind, solar, nuclear power, these resources do not have the same system losses as fossil fuel generators. So a, an old natural gas steam plant throws away two units of heat for every unit of electricity that gets generated. Right. A newer one, half the heat gets rejected. And so in the primary energy accounting, that is a real primary energy consumption when you're using a fossil generator. If you replace that generation with wind or solar, you're not losing that heat. You don't have to replace it. And this is something that Saul Griffith has talked about a lot. There's a whole bunch of primary energy, like 30 to 40% of US primary energy is actually just waste. Right. Then that's one of the things that the IPCC scenarios do well is that they actually get rid of that waste in their scenarios. Like they explicitly account for it. The IEA, the EIA, British Petroleum, they impute, I would call them fictional losses for mm -hmm. wind generation, solar generation. And that there was some argument for doing that back in the day when almost all of the energy generation was fossil. But we're moving towards a world where none of the energy generation is fossil. Right. And in that world, there's no point in counting those fictional losses. They're not real. So the Yasa and the Van Vuren scenarios, they correctly, as all the IPCC scenarios do, they correctly deal with the system losses. Interesting. That's one of the ways that you can get to much lower primary energy in a system if you just get rid of the primary energy associated with losses and replace it with non-combustion resources. Another interesting example is that 40% of, it's a kind of bank shot example, but it's 40% of the large shipping in the world is fossil fuels, mainly coal, oil, and natural gas. If you stop shipping fossil fuels, shipping consumption goes down 40%. Right. So there's a whole bunch of these kind of embedded energy parts of the system related to fossil fuels that simply go away if you start using non-combustion generation, replacing fuels with electricity. So that's an example of why we do our much more detailed decomposition. In the old days and in still in a lot of these analyses, people use what's called the, the four-factor Kaya identity. So the Kaya identity is population times GDP per person times primary energy per GDP times carbon per energy. So those four factors 
in the early days, that was how people broke down what the key drivers of emissions reductions were. Well, for primary energy, there's final energy, and then there's the system losses. So if you lump everything into the primary energy, you miss out on ways to get rid of those system losses. And so our decomposition splits those things out. If you just look at carbon per unit of primary energy, you're not correctly dealing with the possibility of carbon capture. Right. So you need to split those out as well. And then you can take that carbon per unit of primary energy, you can split that into the emissions associated with switching between fossil fuels and then the emissions associated with switching away from fossil fuels. And those are two separate factors. So this is why we developed this more advanced decomposition. And it's all based on the PhD work of Holmes Hummel, who is one of my very best all-time PhD students. I've had some great ones, so she's one of the best. <laughs> but she did this work for her thesis in 2006, and we've been kind of honing this analysis, these tools since then. With her encouragement and support, she was on the 2019 article. So this has been a long road, but we're trying to give visibility into the key drivers so people can really understand in a consistent way across scenarios what's really driving these results. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard when you're a modeler, you have your own set of interests and tools and conventions. It's very hard to compare what modeler A does with what modeler B does with what modeler C does because they're all going to emphasize different parts, different aspects of their analysis. And mm -hmm. with the advantage of these tools is that we can do a consistent analysis across many scenarios. A policymaker can look and say, oh, here's this really interesting thing. Energy intensity goes down really fast in the first few decades of the scenario, and then it flattens out. Why should that be? And this is the kind of question that you could see by looking at our dashboards, at our decomposition tools, that you would never see if you were just looking at a table of numbers. Right. And it needs to be something where they can say, oh, all of these models have that. And this turns out to be true. All of these models have that issue where energy intensity declines relatively rapidly for a few decades and then it kind of levels out. Why does that happen? That's a good question that the policymakers should be asking the modelers. Is it true physical limits or is it a modeling convention or is it some constraint in the modeling? So we don't really know what buildings are going to look like in 30 years what appliances are going to look like in 30 years. That's all three of those are possibilities. All of them probably part of the issue. But the point is having consistent comparisons of these high level drivers, as I've described, allows policymakers to ask these kind of questions of the modelers, which otherwise it's very hard to do in a systematic way. So that's why we're doing this work. And our next step in the work is to build a Python library that the modelers can use in their own workflows. Because what we've realized, you know, the original tools were in Excel and I love Excel. I've been using it since it came out in 1985, if you can believe it. Mm. But for this kind of work, the only way to get broad application and adoption is for the modelers to be able to do it themselves. So our next step is to build a Python library that we can just give to them and say, here, take this. It will generate all of these indicators that we've documented now in these two articles. And when we finally build that Python library, I will feel done with this particular 
part of <laughs> improving the modeling world. I mean, there'll probably be follow on work, but that's kind of the end goal of what we're doing. And it just helps to have this consistent framework of high level indicators to allow comparisons across the models. Yeah, That's like the holy grail for policymakers. And that's hopefully what we'll be able to deliver with this Python library. That's very cool. And I agree that that's an important task that needed to be done, particularly with respect to this question of substituting primary energy for final energy. As I believe you and I discussed in a previous anniversary show, as the transition proceeds and you're moving toward these non-combustion sources of energy generation, you're experiencing a loss of loss in the modeling. Yep. And um, I think it's it's uh, something that trips a lot of people up. But, you know, speaking of improving the modeling, um, you know, we, we had this recent discussion with Ida Sognes of Cicero uh, on... Um, the IMs and how realistic their scenarios are, including why they keep selecting non-existent CCS as a major solution. Um, that was episode 176. And, and I wondered if uh, any of the work that you've been doing here on this decomposition uh, would, you know, have anything to say about that. Well, I think one aspect of it that is helpful is that we're splitting out CCS for fossil generation, from CCS for industrial, hmm. from CCS for biomass energy, and then direct air capture. We haven't dealt with because there haven't been that many scenarios that use it. But it, all of these ways of capturing carbon are distinct, and they have different technological issues and different economic issues. And so it's important to keep them separate. And one of the problems with the the scenario outputs has been that these things have gotten lumped together. So like you would get all CCS lumped together instead of having industrial CCS and fossil CCS. Hmm. And again, the industrial CCS relates to processes, whole set of different set of issues as opposed to the fossil CCS. So, right. so being able to split these things out clearly is one really important benefit of the kind of tools that we're working with. It helps people identify potential issues and the general issues that Ida was pointing out are something that we can talk about. There's a bunch of issues around CCS. The models love CCS, but in the practical policy world, might be hard to get to implement at the scale that is needed. Yeah. And that's something we can talk more about. Well, I think one of the key insights there is that in the absence of global carbon pricing, CCS is really hard to imagine as becoming a major part of the solution set. But related to that is if we did have a world of carbon pricing and things like CCS then had basically a way to get implemented, we might also then be able to draw upon this work you mentioned earlier from your oil and now gas climate index, where you're rating the life cycle assessment of different kinds of oil and gas production and the products that come out of there. And so you could imagine that work leading to a world in which carbon pricing was actually influencing where oil and gas is produced and the subsequent products that are made from it. Yeah. So this is an important point. I think that most people think that when they think of oil, they think of oil products. They think of gasoline, they think of diesel. But really, if you look at things from a full life cycle perspective for both oil and gas, you actually see significant variation 
So what you see for oil from the lowest to the highest emitting oil per barrel, it's more than a factor of two difference in terms of the emissions. And that difference relates to carbon content of oil and how watery the oil is and how much methane is emitted or flared from that production, how you process it and so on. For gas, it's methane flaring and releases as well. And for gas, it's more like a factor of four difference from lowest to highest. So that's really important if you were factoring, if you're going to do a carbon price, if you just did it on the combustion products, the carbon content of the fuel, that's the way most economists have thought about it historically. But actually, when you have such big variations in the total emissions from different barrels of oil, you really have to start looking at the whole supply chain and then integrating that information into the market process. And Debbie Gordon has been leading this work, this iteration. The latest one was just released a few months ago. RMI was actually instrumental. You know, she did it under their umbrella. So very important for the carbon pricing side. But if you have a carbon price, as you talked about, it creates a business model for CCS. So that's the only way. I mean, there's there's this discussion of reinjecting CO2 to get more oil out, but that's a kind of niche thing that actually is not compatible with climate stabilization. So that's the only other business model. It's certainly not enough to drive significant change. So right. you need a carbon tax for CCS. Yeah. But multiple problems. One problem is if you have a carbon tax for CCS, it advantages other technologies too. And CCS has this problem that it's high capital cost and high operating cost. Sign me up. <laughs> so the other way to say that is there are other ways to reduce emissions that actually produce real products. So a wind turbine, a nuclear plant, solar plant, right. they produce electricity that has value. Right. And that is something that is different because CCS is just a cost center. So if you have a carbon price, you can make it work, but the carbon price advantages all those other options too. And so there's a real question in my mind, that even if you had a carbon price, how CCS would do, because it's technically complicated. There have been some reasonable scale experiments, but all of them have had problems mm -hmm. and very few of them are now operating. Yeah. And so this is not something that people should be betting the farm on by all means, look into it and research it. But it's certainly not an alternative to real emissions reductions. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Well, John, this, wow, we've been talking for two hours. This has been quite the romp through <laughs> some of the topics we covered in the past year. Yeah. Well, thank you, John, for taking this time to talk through all these stories with us. There's obviously so many different angles to the energy transition and so much to talk about. And we didn't even talk about all the stories that we talked about over the past year. But I think we tackled some of the important ones. It was really great, as always, to get your perspective on some of these questions. And thanks for returning once again for the seventh time to our show and doing the anniversary with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Chris. And the most important thing is that it was a lot of fun. So thanks for doing this. You betcha. That was Jonathan Kumi speaking with us from California. I hope you found this annual retrospective helpful in connecting some of the many ongoing threads of the energy transition and in adding a little color to the overall picture. The story just seems to get more complex every year. 
Not many energy analysts have the scope of understanding to tackle such a wide array of topics, and I'm grateful as always to John for being willing to come back and review it all with me. But although it is a complex story, taking action on climate change through the energy transition and other strategies still boils down to a simple idea which John has pithily repeated on our show several times. We need to reduce emissions as much as possible, as fast as possible, starting now. And although the twists and turns of reality occasionally put us in difficult situations or force us to take a step back, like having to fall back on coal-fired power plants in Europe temporarily to get us through the current energy crisis, that simple objective remains, and will remain, until we get the job done. The energy crisis has caused energy markets to be incredibly volatile this year after nearly a decade of relative quiescence, driven by both the many factors that led to high natural gas prices around the world starting more than a year ago, and by the knock-on effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the West's response this year. The day after we recorded this interview, Germany one-year-forward baseload electricity surged to over 400 euros per megawatt hour for the first time ever, about 10 times the 2010 to 2020 average, and that was only the beginning. We'll have much more to say about the volatility in energy markets in the next episode. And if you're looking for a good primer on how to address climate change, check out John's new book. When it's published later this year, you'll find a link to it in the show notes. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. By now I assume you've all heard plenty about the $370 billion Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., the largest climate bill in U.S. history. You may have even heard about some of the recently announced investments that will capitalize on incentives offered in that bill, and in other recent federal funding offers to accelerate the energy transition, like Arizona-based First Solar's decision to spend up to $1.2 billion to expand its solar panel production in the U.S., or an energy startup called Sparks that's building a battery factory in West Virginia that will produce cobalt-free batteries, or Toyota's announcement that it will invest an additional $2.5 billion in a U.S. facility where it manufactures vehicle batteries, or the announcements by Honda and Panasonic that they will each spend $4 billion in U.S.-based EV battery manufacturing plants. But there was another law passed two days later that could direct an estimated $67 billion towards zero-carbon industries and climate research in the U.S., the $280 billion CHIPS Act. If Congress appropriates the funding authorized in the Act, it could, together with the Inflation Reduction Act and last year's infrastructure law, more than triple the federal government's average annual spending on climate and clean energy this decade as compared with the 2010s. The CHIPS Act will aim to help emissions reduction technologies get to commercial scale by increasing funding to the U.S. Department of Energy, including its national labs, as well as establishing new offices like a Directorate of Technology that will explicitly pursue industrial policy. And to all of the above, I say, it's about damn time. Item 2. In late July, MISO, one of the nine structured wholesale power markets and transmission grids in the U.S., approved 18 new high-voltage transmission lines in what will be the single largest transmission expansion enabling clean energy in U.S. history. 
When complete, the expansion could enable the addition of 53 gigawatts of renewable energy to the grid. Expected to come online beginning in 2028, the $10.3 billion in transmission projects will help 15 states across the Midwest and parts of the South integrate more renewable generation, boost the grid's resilience against extreme weather fueled by climate change, and help make up for the loss of some 50 gigawatts of retiring coal-fired power plants and other aging generators. Most of the funding for the projects will come from utility customers in the conventional manner. The approval only permits the projects to move forward. It doesn't actually address the many hurdles to siting new transmission lines, as we have discussed previously in Episodes 50, 98, and 161. Item 3. Offshore wind is surging on multiple fronts in Europe. Horn C2 in the North Sea is now the world's largest offshore wind farm with a capacity of over 1.3 gigawatts. The project will get a fixed price of 74 pounds per megawatt hour in today's money, which according to calculations by Simon Evans of Carbon Brief, is about one-sixth the current cost of gas. The project will generate six terawatt hours of clean power a year, enough to displace one-third of the gas the UK imported from Russia last year. The next project, Horn C3, will be even bigger and even cheaper, at 2.9 gigawatts for just 44 pounds per megawatt hour, and that will open in about five years. In the Baltic Sea, a $9 billion 3-gigawatt offshore wind power hub called the Bornholm Energy Island is in planning, which will link several offshore wind parks and distribute the energy they produce between Germany and Denmark. The project will help displace the need for Russian gas and help fulfill the European Commission's goal of increasing Europe's offshore wind capacity from its current level of 12 gigawatts to 300 gigawatts by 2050. And the largest port in Denmark, the port of Espia, the site of Denmark's first large-scale offshore wind farm and the world's largest base port for offshore wind, has announced this year a number of major enhancements to enable additional capacity to support offshore wind, green hydrogen, and more. In May, four European heads of state and the president of the EU Commission met there to sign on to a strategy that will increase offshore wind in the North Sea to 65 gigawatts by 2030 and 150 gigawatts by 2050. Among the port's expansions are extending the harbor by 500,000 square meters to a total of 4.5 million square meters, hosting a 1 gigawatt hydrogen electrolyzer by 2040 with another 1 gigawatt plant nearby in the planning stages that will produce green fertilizer produced from wind-generated hydrogen, and replacing the port's existing coal-fired power plant with a mix of clean alternatives, including a 50 megawatt marine source heat pump that will be the largest of its kind in the world. And if that sounds like Greek to you, listen to episode 155. Item 4. The largest solar farm in Alaska broke ground in mid-August. Although relatively small by solar farm standards, the 8.5 megawatt project in Houston, Alaska, just north of Anchorage, will nearly double the solar capacity in the state. The project uses bifacial modules and is backed by New York-based Clean Capital through its minority stake in Renewable IPP, a developer that also developed the largest existing solar farm in Alaska. Part of the motivation for the project is $200 million on offer from local utilities to invest in renewable projects as concerns mount about the reliability of natural gas supply in the state. The power it generates will be sold under a 25-year PPA to the Matanuska Electric Association, starting at just 6.7 cents per kilowatt hour. According to the EIA, Alaska's retail electricity prices currently range from around 20 to 24 cents per kilowatt hour. 
The state has a non-binding goal to generate 50% of its electricity from renewable and alternative energy sources by 2025, up from 31% in 2020. Currently, solar provides just half of 1% of Alaska's electricity. And finally, item 5. In late August, California banned the sale of new gasoline-powered vehicles starting in 2035. The rule, issued by the California Air Resources Board, the state air quality regulator, requires increasing shares of total new vehicle sales to be powered by batteries or hydrogen fuel cells from 35% by 2026 to 68% by 2030 and 100% by 2035. The rule will also allow automakers to sell up to 20% plug-in hybrids, which have gas engines, by 2035. In 2022, more than 16% of new cars sold in California are zero-emission vehicles. The policy will not ban people from continuing to drive cars or from buying and selling them on the used market after 2035. At least 15 states, including New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania, have adopted California's vehicle standards on previous clean car rules, and they are expected to follow California's lead in phasing out internal combustion engines as well. Some environmental groups argued for an even faster phase-out of internal combustion engine vehicles, but my personal guess is that by the time 2030 rolls around, EVs will have gained such a competitive edge over ICE vehicles in every way, and supplying California's boutique blend of gasoline will have become so difficult that sheer market preference will overtake policy as the main driver of the transition to electric vehicles. In closing, thank you for supporting the show. Since we are entirely subscriber-supported, it could not exist without you. Be sure to log into our website to explore our extensive show notes, interview transcripts, and the text of our news items for each episode, all of which are only available on our website. And if you have an annual or group subscription, check out our exclusive job board and complete back catalog of Evergreen shows. If you have feedback to share about the show or suggestions for future shows, don't hold back. Just use the comment form on any show page or email me directly at chris at energytransitionshow.com. And please help us build our audience by telling your friends and colleagues about the show, by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, and by giving Transition Show a shout out on Twitter. Finally, if you think your company, nonprofit, or university would benefit from a group license or a site license so your colleagues can enjoy the full benefits of our annual subscriptions, just drop us a line. We offer significant group discounts and have an easy way to enroll everyone. And thank you for spreading the word. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. 